Welcome to David Gogo's Soul Bender podcast. A journey through the blues as seen through the hazy recollections from a life on the road. Here we go with episode 21 of SBP. I'm Scott James with David Gogo. If you're feeling festive and looking for a live Christmas tree this year and you're in the vicinity of Gogo Mountain in Nanaimo, which is an actual Christmas tree farm, you might want to trundle up there and grab a bushy specimen, Martin, from the man himself. And you can even take advantage of his tree plus a CD offer, which is such a deal I can't even. Or if you'd like to just toss him a couple of shekels online, you can do that at paypal.me slash gogoguitar. And as always, send your questions to soulbenderpodcast at gmail.com. So, what do you do when you've just turned 87 years old? Well, if you're John Mayall, the godfather of British blues, you could record and release a new single with Buddy Miller called I'm As Good As Gone. Come daylight in the morning i tell you I'm good as gone Mick Fleetwood says, quote, The importance of the role of John Mayall in British blues music is beyond belief. End of quote. And he should know, having co-founded a pretty good blues band called Fleetwood Mac. You may have heard of them. What do you think? Is Mick's analysis worthy? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the guy's incredible. His output throughout decades and decades is consistent and uh, it, prolific. Isn't you know doesn't even start to be to be uh, describe what he what he does. And eighty seven years old and putting out a, a new song. And you just know damn well that he'd be out touring right now if he could. But we can't because of the COVID. Um, I understand a couple of years ago he had some health problems, but he looks to have bounced back from that. So, you know, you got to love, love, that's what I love about this kind of music is you just kind of keep doing it until you drop. Yeah. Tell us a wee bit about Mr. Mayall. You know, when I was, when I was a little kid, if I went with my mom to go visit relatives or maybe I was with my parents and we went to go to some friends of theirs place or dinner or something, I always would check out their vinyl collection. Um... I was really interested in, in, you know, I just, I've always loved music. And it seems that everyone had a John Mayall record of some kind, because he, he certainly put enough of them out. Um, so I kind of looked up a bit of his history, because, you know, he started early. Um, in fact, when he started, I believe it was 1962, when he started kind of performing blues live in England, and no one really knew what the music was. It was it was um, hard to get a gig. Like, no one was interested until in 1962 he met up with um, Alexis Corner and Cyril Davies. And um, Blues Incorporated it became, I guess. These are famous names for people who have read about the Rolling Stones or any kind of, uh, you know, British bands from the early 60s. Because these guys knew what they were doing, and John Mayall had a had an amazing uh, collection, vinyl collection. I think it started with seventy eights, and then on to to um, LPs. So these guys, you know, you couldn't really hear this music anywhere. So they'd have to, you know, go go and borrow records or go to these people's houses just to listen to it. And um, Mayall came from an artistic background and that was another thing is is all his albums especially in the old days had this distinctive font which is actually his font and he's a painter and he even painted some of the album covers so you know artistic dude um so these guys as well uh blues incorporated and, and variations on that group 
uh, were the guys that first started backing up blues artists in the 60s when they came to England to play for the first time. Uh, so they backed up people like John Lee Hooker and T-Bone Walker, Sonny Boy Williamson, things like that. Uh, he seemed to know what he was doing as far as hiring guitar players went. Well, that's the crazy thing is that, you know, John always worked with great musicians, but his choice of guitar players, especially at the very beginning, it couldn't have been better. It's the uh, ultimate pedigree man of um, of British guitar. Um, in 1966, um, Eric Clapton joined his band, and they recorded only one album together. I think it, officially the, the album's called John Mayles and the Blues Breakers, but it's known as the Beano album because on the front cover, there's a photo of the band, and Eric Clapton is reading a comic book called Beano, The Beano, a British comic book. Anyways, this is the first time any of us heard um, someone play a Les Paul guitar through a Marshall amplifier, and it is absolutely groundbreaking and absolutely phenomenal. <clears throat> Occasionally, I'll get people that say to me, you know, what's so great about Eric Clapton? But they're only familiar with the stuff he's done in the last 20 years or 30 years or something, and it, it, which is still good. But when I play them, Eric Clapton from that album, it's fierce and people, you know, it's, it's, it's just incredible. His attack, his tone, his vibrato, everything, it just, just blows me away. And um, so then the crazy thing is Clapton was only with John for a while. They only did the one album. Then he decided to move on and he formed Cream. So you'd think that that would be a crushing blow. Uh, if you were a band leader and you had a young Eric Clapton in your band. I mean, this is the time where people were sp spray painting Clapton as God on, you know, alley walls and stuff in England because they just couldn't believe the tone and this guy. Well, next thing you know, John Mayall recruits Mr. Peter Green, who uh, we've done an episode on, recently passed. And Peter Green is incredible. Um and same thing, the album's called A Hard Road, 1967. And it's fantastic. Uh, so Such a tasty player and such great tone. And the cool thing was, too, is, is it was like with Mayall, he'd always give these guys a chance, too. Like, like on the Beano album with Clapton, that's the first time Eric Clapton ever sang on a record. Eric played in the Yardbirds before that, but just as a guitar player. Uh, on the Beano albums, the first time he, he did a vocal. He did uh, Ramblin' on My Mind, the Robert Johnson tune. And same with uh, A Hard Road. Uh, Peter Green sang a couple of the tunes and um, even wrote a few of them. Uh, it, it's it's really cool. Apparently, John Mayall gave Peter Green the advice that Peter Green asked him, you know, how do you write a song? And he said, well, think of a song you like. I try to, one sound, try to write one that sounds like it. <clears throat> and I think that's how Peter Green wrote Black Magic Woman was it was based kind of on Otis Rush. Uh, I need your love so bad. No, not um, the one that Colin James did. I want you, whatever it's called. I can't I can't recall right now. But he he did a great instrumental called The Supernatural on that album. But then, because um, Mick Fleetwood had worked a couple gigs, John McVie. The Mac and Fleetwood Mac had been Mayall's bass player for quite a while. He played on the Clapton album, and he was also on a hard road. Um, Peter Green, it was hard for him to convince John McVie, but he says, I want to form a band with you and Mick Fleetwood. And uh, McVie kind of was pretty happy with the steady paycheck from John Mayall. But eventually Peter Green left after a hard road and formed 
Fleetwood Mac. So you got to think to yourself as a band leader, what do I do now? <laughs> I've had the two hottest guitar players in England. They both left. Well, believe it or not, he next the next guitar player on the next album, the album's called Crusade, is a 17-year-old Mick Taylor. Uh, who, when he left, he went to join a little little group called the Rolling Stones. <laughs> but uh, Mick Taylor, oh, when I was kind of getting this podcast together, you know, just trying to think about what I want to talk about, I went back and listened to some of these albums, and God damn it, I can't believe the tone and the phrasing and the vibrato once again, you know, and, and this guy's only 17 years old. Give me a break. Oh, my God. <laughs> Well, you never know. I mean, look at uh, Kenny Wayne Shepherd getting a record deal at, uh, what, 13, 14 years old? I hear John got a bit of a reputation for enjoying the partying on down. Well, yeah. And, you know, I didn't meet John Mayall till, oh, goodness, like early 90s or something. And the first time that I hung out with him and his band, which we'll get to in a, in a couple of minutes, um, we, had, we had some good laughs, that's for sure. I don't remember being a partier, but we had some good laughs. But apparently he was a partier because he had eventually moved to uh, to California at a house on Laurel Canyon. And the house was known as the Brain Damage Club. <laughs> so I guess they were partying. And um, I had read a few things and heard things from other people that knew John back then. And I guess it was a you know, three-level house and with a swimming pool. And they would jump, people would jump out of the third-story window into the pool and uh, and apparently, apparently, it was it was just a gong show. So, <laughs> uh, didn't that house burn down? Yes, and I've heard all sorts of weird stories. I guess you know one of those California brush fire situations. <clears throat> no, a couple things about it. I've heard from someone once that John actually had two fire insurance policies on his house. I don't know if anyone has two insurance policies, but apparently did. So, despite the fact that he lost his home and his possessions, I guess he did well with the insurance. Unfortunately, the thing is, the possessions. Well. Oh my God, he apparently had one of the biggest collections of pornography in the world, dating back to like the 1800s, like just this fantastic collection and like like, like museum worthy. Um, I actually went to the erotic museum in Amsterdam one time, but I don't think they had anything on John's collection. Uh, and antiques, and I guess he kept all these diaries of, of all his music career up to that point. This would have been, I think, like mid-70s. So that's a real shame, and I'm sure there was instruments and, you know, you know, and then your personal things as well, so that's horrible. But I just think about, you know, if he's anything like Bill Wyman from the Rolling Stones, these guys would keep these really intense um, diaries, and, and, you know, it would have been fantastic to have those documents. So it's, it, that, that's a real shame for the guy. When did you meet John for the first time? Well, I'm not sure that I met him per se. I might have got an autograph, and I think it was, I remember one time he played at Expo, I think, Expo 86 in Vancouver, and I think I saw him there. Yes, I did, because um, I knew Albert Collins, and people can go back and listen to the Albert Collins episode. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a triple bill, and if I remember correctly... Yeah, Albert was on first, and John Mayle, and I think it was Omar and the Howlers were headlining because they had they had a hit at the time on, on FM radio. So I might have just got an autograph and shook his hand or something. But and then I saw him not th- far after that. I remember he played at the Town Pump in Vancouver, and it was insane because once again the guitar player thing, 
at this time, he not only had Coco Taylor, uh, Coco uh, Montoya, Coco Montoya on guitar, but he also had Walter Trout. Now, if anyone is a blues fan out there, they know that these are two of the heavyweights of uh, the contemporary blues scene, and they're both incredible singers too. Having either one of those guys in your band would have been, you know, <laughs> quite a feat. He had both of them, so that was ridiculous. Did you open that show? No, at that point, I was just there as a fan, but it wasn't that much longer that I did open. Um, Gary Van Buskirk, he used to book Harpo's Nightclub, the legendary Harpo's in Victoria. I remember he uh, got in touch with me at one time because he had he was promoting a couple John Mayall and the Bluesbreaker shows, one in Vancouver and one in Victoria at Harpo's. But Mayall needed transportation uh, to get from Vancouver to Victoria and back. And you know, I'm like 19 years old, and I had this shitty van that I, I bought. And so anyways, Gary hired me to do that. And I, I think we opened the shows with my band. Maybe we just opened one, but regardless, I, I mean, you know, I, I've opened for John many times. But this trip in particular was funny because the band at this point was John Mayall. I believe it was Joe Ueli on drums, who played with him forever. A guy named Freebo on bass. Freebo... Uh, was a guy that I recognized from reading guitar magazines as a kid because he had this big kind of afro and and played uh, bass, but he played fretless bass, which was you know kind of unique at the time. Uh, and he also played with Bonnie Raitt back in Bonnie's early days. <clears throat> and then Coco Montoya was still on guitar as well. So at, by this point, I knew Coco a little bit from um, the Albert Collins connection, and he was at the time was hooked up with Debbie Davies, so. I knew Debbie from Albert. So, you know, he kind of knew, we kind of knew each other a little bit. The other guys I didn't know so much. <clears throat> Anyways, I'm hired to pick these guys up. And I don't know what they must have thought when I pull up to the airport or the hotel, whatever it was in Vancouver, uh, in this crappy old uh, Ford van. I'm trying to remember. It wasn't an, it was not, wasn't an, an Econoline. It was like called a chalet or something. It was like or, yellow and brown. <laughs> I don't even think it had carpet, just like like plywood on the floor. Anyways, uh, they kind of looked and went, well, well, you know, here we go. And now here's the thing about John. I'll, I'll back up a little bit. <clears throat> Every time I ever saw John Mayall, he'd hump his own gear and set up his own gear. Which really, to me, was so odd because to me, he was a big star, you know. Um, and he, he was no spring chicken even then. I mean, he's 87 now. This is, you know you know, 30 years ago, I guess. But um, he didn't seem to have any pretensions about that, you know. Um, I, I mean, I hump my gear and set up my gear, but I try to do it before the club opens or something. <laughs> but he just, he'll just go right through. He doesn't care. But anyway, so so they, they load all their gear up, and um, we kind of all hit it off right away. I forget. I, I did something. Like he was asking if, if they were promoting the show properly. So I, and no offense, Scott, but I... Uh, I started doing my FM DJ ways going, oh yeah, this weekend, we've got John Mayall, legendary godfather of the British blues. And they, they got, thought that was really funny, you know? So, so we started telling jokes and um, we, when we went to get on the ferry, I, you know, I pull up and I go, how many passengers? And I said, you know, four adults and one Freebo. Well, they just went <laughs> shit crazy at poor Freebo's expense that I would say that. And it's pretty crazy that a you know, 19-year-old kid would be that cocky to say that. But anyway, so we started to get along. Uh, regarding the FM air staffer thing, keep your day job. So you're on the ferry over there. Yeah, no, here's a neat thing. And 
opening up for so many of these artists when I was a kid, and I'd always try to hang out with them, and I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about how to be a band leader and um, how to just how to be a professional musician, you know. Um, and one of the things with, with Mail, I noticed he was constantly doing something. He seemed very organized. Now, this is before cell phones and GPS and all that stuff. So he had like a, a physical map, a paper map of the local area and figuring out where the gigs were. And he had like a little piece of paper that it, with a pen and marked and kind of did a scale, kind of a ruler thing. And he's following this roadmap with this weird little ruler trying to figure out approximately how long it's going to take to drive to the next gigs. And, you know, so he was doing a lot of this pre-production kind of thing, which I really took to heart because I was starting to go out on the road at this time. And we had no idea what we're doing. And like I said, you couldn't just pop in the address of the club in your phone. You had to figure out where the goddamn city was first and how you're going to get there. So it was just interesting learning that. And then so we kind of, I wouldn't say became friends. We kind of let his guard down and I got to know the other guys. Like I'm wearing 300 pound shoes, baby Can't lift my feet up off the ground Feels like I'm wearing 300 pound shoes, baby Can't lift my feet up off the ground You know I felt this way Ever since you put me down Feels like I'm wearing a three-piece lit suit now, baby I find it so hard to move around
Slice of David Gogo's Vibe album on the Soul Bender podcast, 300 pound shoes. Or for our listeners in Canada, $515.22 shoes as of December 6th, 2020. So you're out on the road with John Mayall. You said you got to know the guys. How was that? Well, on that first little trip where I was kind of their chauffeur slash laughing boy, their little court jester, uh, one thing happened. I'd heard another thing with Mayall that in the old days, especially, that he would do this crazy thing, um, kind of a precursor to puppetry of the penis. But I guess if you were a new person in the band, once your initiation, once they were comfortable with you, was he would do these weird displays, <laughs> or I guess you'd be led into his hotel room, which would be completely dark, and then they'd one of the guys would turn the lamp on, and every time they turned the lamp on, John would be completely naked and in a different kind of um, position with his genitals, um, <laughs> and so you know they'd flick it on and be like you know the brain, and then all of a sudden it'd go dark, and then. Flick it on again and ducks in flight. <laughs> and he would use his genitalia to do this. I mean, yeah, so I remember there was the brain. Well, maybe that was Dutch Mason. But anyways, there was uh, ducks in flight. You can imagine that. <laughs> Bulldog, which apparently also included his ass. And the other one I remember, which I, you know, the visual, I don't think you have to be in the room. It was last chicken on the shelf. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for traumatizing us. Uh, did you personally witness that? Well, no. As, much, as strange as it sounds, I would have liked to have seen that, but no. But um, the other thing I guess he was known for, and this is so bizarre. So we're in the van and Coco's, he's a funny guy too, so we're having some good laughs. And um, he says, John, you got you to do it. You got to do your thing for the kid here. And John was kind of reluctant. Now, here's the other weird thing about John Mayall, and I picked up on this. I'm good at this, is he would nap whenever he could. Like, if you get to the club and he's like, so where's the PA? Oh, it'll be here in 20 minutes. 20 minutes, okay. And he'd go lay under a pool table and sleep for 20 20 minutes. He just kept doing these cat naps. So he was kind of doing that in my van. We had their gear in the back of the van, and there was like maybe a foot of space between the gear and and, and the roof of the van. So he would lay there. He would stretch right out and, and like kind of sleep. But anyways, he was there and he wasn't sleeping at this time. I guess he was reading or something. And Coco says, you got to do it. And he goes, oh, okay. Now, there used to be a man in France. I, this is, I think it was the late 1800s, Le Petomain. And what he did was he actually played theaters and was quite well known. He was a celebrity 
In fact, in the movie uh, Blazing Saddles, that's Mel Brooks, is one of his characters, is the governor, Governor Le Um What he would do was he could fart on command. And not only just fart, but like do songs, <laughs> you know, like, like imitate things. Like it was an actual act. So he somehow could get air into his ass and then expel it at the rate he wanted to and he had different tones. So anyways, I guess John can kind of do that because he's, he's in my van and he'd go, he's like, the one I remember was jazz fart. So he'd get the cheek of his ass and he'd let this real low kind of long fart go and he'd shake his, his, his ass. So it had a, a vibrato, like a, like, like a, <laughs> a tenor saxophone, like a jazz, nice velvety tone. <laughs> and he was, he did this whole display of farting in my van. So, isn't that special? Eh, thank you for traumatizing us yet again. Must have been something to see one of your musical heroes doing stuff like that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, here's a guy I've been listening to for years, and you know, like, you, and then I'm just this. It was, it was great. It was just, it was fantastic. <laughs> okay. And the other times you played with him? Yeah. So, you know, John's because he's been going, you know, playing for so long. He's so well known, and I guess there was a bit of a connection. Um, when my first album came out on the EMI label, they sent us over to Europe to do some playing, and um, we ended up doing a, sh- a short tour of Germany with uh, with John, and got to know those guys. At this point, there was a guitar player, Buddy Whittington, Texan guy, real nice guy, and he was with John for, for about 20 years, I think. Uh, so I got to know the guys. Um, i trying to remember who was on bass. I don't think it was Freebo anymore. Anyways... Um, we're still Joe Uelli, so we kind of knew the guys. Uh, this time, though, John was much more kind of—he just wasn't wasn't hanging. He wasn't hanging. So, in fact, he'd set his gear up, but then he he didn't want to do sound check and stuff. He'd go back to the hotel. So, I didn't really see him as much. I uh, got a couple photographs, said hello. But the funny thing was, is Mail's got this really high voice, and it's quite a distinctive thing. <clears throat> so, when the Bluesbreakers were doing their sound check. None of them really sang. So I said, hey, you want me to, to sing just as so you can get the monitors going? So, I'm this year. so then I, as a joke, I tried to, I sang like John May, I'll do my impersonation. So I go, it's a mean old scene. It's a mean old scene. When it comes to double crossing time. When it comes to double crossing time. Which is this kind of, you know, it's not really nasal, but it's in your head, this kind of, and, and it's, and that's how John Mayall sounds. And uh, the guys just both fell on the floor laughing, and they go, fuck, can you do that every show? I <laughs> think we had four or five shows together. They said, but don't ever tell John, don't ever tell John. <laughs> and I guess I could tell them now, because they don't play with John anymore, but it was pretty funny to get up with the blues breakers and pretend to be John Mayall. Have you seen him lately? Well, no, I haven't really. Um... The last time I saw him, I, I think we were playing the Thunder Bay Blues Festival. Uh, this is funny because, like I said, he Wilson wasn't hanging as much. And he, he seemed to get rather abrupt as, as the years went on. So I remember we landed at, at Thunder Bay. We're at the airport. And I recognized Buddy Whittington. Well, we recognized each other. Hey, man, you know, how you doing? How you doing? And then May all walks up. And he goes, and he's, he just ignores me. He just looks right at Buddy. He goes, are we ready to go? Party goes, yeah, yeah, John, I got the guitars here. Um, oh, do you remember David Gogo? We, we, we played in Germany with him. And he looks at me, and he looks, and he goes, as a matter of fact, I do. And that was it. <laughs> Which is so bizarre. Um, and then another time was Constance Bay, Ontario, my home away from home. 
um, our buddy Kirk out there, he is a big music fan, and he he was just putting he he put on some shows just for the community, like promoted shows um, of his favorite bands. He's a big blues rock fan, so um, he had Savoy Brown there one time, uh, and and we'd usually open because my band, my Ottawa band, that's that's where they live. That's their their hang. Uh, so yeah, so we had Savoy Brown, which I don't think we opened for Savoy Brown, but because we, we had our own gig that night, but we quickly went in and said hi to Kim and the fellas. We did open for Johnny Winter there. So I mean, these are big names, but it's a funny venue because it's, it's a community center and you got to go upstairs. It's kind of like playing the high school gym, but even kind of smaller, you know, but that's what that community has. And, and, and that's the only venue to do it. And that's where they want to do it because it's a fun community. They don't want to have to go all the way into Ottawa and stuff. So I don't know if, if that played a factor in it, but he decided to get John Mayall. And so we, we were on the gig, and um, it was the same thing where after the show, I, I came up and reintroduced myself. Hi, John, you know, and years ago, I drove you in my van, and then went, we played with, with you in Germany, and I saw you in Thunder Bay a couple of years ago. And he just looks at me and goes, so we have history. <laughs> that was about it, you know. But we got some cool, cool photos, and I'll, I'll post those, I guess. Of him and I, but it was so strange that night because, you know, we had rocked an opening set and people are having a good time. He goes to go on stage and he insists that they turn all the lights on. I guess he he said, no, this stage is too dark. So he made them turn the lights on in the venue. And this, like I said, it's like a, a community center gym. So it's those horrible fluorescent lights like you get in high school or something. So it was a real kind of a groove buster, but he refused to play unless they had the fucking lights on. So that was, that was weird. man. <laughs> and no Brown eminence. Can you sum up the impact John Mayall had on you? Well, here's a guy that keeps, um, keeps going all the time. Uh, never rests on his laurels, never kind of gets repetitive. Like he's, he's known over his career just to completely break things up. Like he'll have a great cooking band and then he'll go, you know what? I just want to play in a duo for the next couple of records or, you know, so he's changing it up. He's, Kind of like not radically reinventing himself, but keeping it probably more interesting for him and fresh for him. So that's an influence. And I mentioned earlier just watching him as a band leader. I mean, I remember being in the dressing room at Harpo's and, you know, they had a certain hospitality rider. And I think Coco wanted like Kentucky Fried Chicken or whatever. So there's you know, like a bunch of food backstage. And I remember, I remember distinctly after the gig, he looks and there's some donuts there. And he went to reach to one and he's just, he says to himself, no, don't eat that. Donuts make you fat. So you could tell he's like conscious of, you know, like trying to stay healthy on the road and, and um, which is, it can be a real challenge. Uh, so, so it was interesting, you know, to get the, the influence of him, not only just musically and, and kind of as a fan and as a, you know, as a musician, but to have some of that personal interaction. So, you know, a lot of that stays with me to this day. Absolutely. All right. That's it. Your questions are more than welcome. Email soulbenderpodcast at gmail.com and contributions to help keep the lights on and the wolves away from the door are also welcome at paypal.me slash guitar. I'm Scott James. He's David Gogo. Thank you, and we continue to love you. This has been David Gogo's Soulbender podcast. To stay up to date, follow him on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Until next time.